At People's Capital Group, we help you invest in real estate. Build your wealth by owning professionally managed apartment buildings in the northern New Jersey market. We want to show you how owning real estate is attainable, even for the busy professionals that don't have the time or experience investing in real estate. Now, we only work with select people who are serious about building wealth. So find out if you qualify at peoplescapitalgroup.com. All right, welcome back to the Passive Cash Flow Podcast, where we help people invest in real estate. Now, some episodes include interesting guests that span dozens of different types of industries. Other episodes offer analysis of popular topics that pertain to people seeking to learn how to build passive wealth in real estate. So listen in and enjoy our off-the-cuff podcast made to entertain, educate, and help you learn how to create passive wealth in real estate. So today we have an interesting guest. I have Clayton Helper with me on the Passive Cashflow Podcast. And I want to invite Clayton on because he does a lot of very creative stuff in uh, finance, uh, making your money work for you in a couple different ways involving life insurance policies, infinite banking, and he also invests in real estate himself. So we'll talk a little bit about that and the lessons you've learned. So Clayton, how are we doing today? Tremendous. Yeah, Aaron, I'm really excited to be on Hopefully we can get some some value to your listeners and maybe uh, get the the air conditioning fixed as well. <laughs> yes, my air conditioning broke here at my house, so uh, great day for it to break here. It's a very very warm day, uh, but you know it's all good. Luckily, I have a lot of fans around here, and uh, although I can't keep mine on in this office with uh, the recording going, so it's it's pretty warm. So we'll speed this up here, and we'll have a nice, <laughs> speedy, yet informative podcast here today. Uh, and then hopefully my AC can get uh, replaced. Uh, well, we got to get permits. I need the whole thing replaced. The whole thing's got to go. So yeah, they got to rip out all the duct work. So it's going to be like three weeks until I can even get a crew over here. So yeah, uh, this is my life. That's all right. That's how we're rolling. That's how we're rolling. I'm, you know, I bought this home. Uh, and uh, that's what happens when you buy a new home sometimes, right? The uh, home inspector couldn't test the AC because I was buying it in February. Although I feel like he could have turned up the heat and then warmed up the house and then turned on the AC and tested it. But anyway, um, oh, he, but the air would have been cold that it's pumping in. So he wouldn't know if it was okay. I got it. I got it. So um, you can't test the AC in the middle of winter. So, uh, you know, that's, uh, that's, you get sometimes part of learning uh, about buying houses, right? We learn things every day. You know? Amen. Amen. Yeah. Sometimes you got to learn the hard way. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. But no worries here. Let's move onward and upward, Clayton. So I want to have in the show here because you do a lot of interesting things. So just uh, give a quick introduction about yourself here real quick. Sure. Uh, I am the chief wealth strategist at the Creative Capitalist. Now, the, the role, the purpose, the passion behind the Creative Capitalist is we help entrepreneurs and real estate investors create, protect, and multiply their cash flow. As many real estate investors know, many of your listeners know, cash flow is the lifeblood to business, to life. And so what we do is we focus on implementing strategies uh, of the wealthy that helps us optimize and amplify our, our cash flow, which I'm sure we're going to talk about today. I'm also a real estate investor. I'm a Burr real estate investor. Uh, I purchase small multifamily Burrs and also focusing on luxury Airbnbs uh, just purchased a, a multi-million dollar Airbnb out in Colorado. 
in the mountains of Colorado, right next to Rocky Mountain National Park, mm. and hoping to, to, to have excuses to buy more luxury Airbnbs and really cool places so I can go and visit them and do my property management techniques. <laughs> That's awesome. So let's break into that real quick, because I uh, bought a number of Airbnb properties in Southern Vermont, and um, oh. you know we owned them through the pandemic, and it was pretty good. You know We were able to make a little bit of cash flow on them, although I think that when the pandemic started, the rates people were paying in New England were very high, and it kind of came down a little bit. Um, but we bought at the right time, kind of beginning of the pandemic, and property value shot up. So Overall, it was a great investment. We sold them for a nice profit. But the reason we sold them is because we found it extremely difficult to manage uh, short-term rentals. Uh, We just didn't uh, find a lot of people in rural Vermont that wanted to work with our policies and our protocol and, you know, show up to work on time and sober and do your job, you know, properly and, um, you know, fill out the proper tax form. So we just found a lot of challenges with people in that area that didn't want to cooperate, um, weren't willing to um, really, you know, cooperate with, with uh, what we were asking them to do, you know, be like a cleaning company. And we'd be like, we need you to also, you know, put some chocolates out and be like, nope, we don't, we don't do that. We don't touch chocolates. We don't, you know, we can't, all we do is we clean and we leave. We won't do anything else for, you know, so like, and then like one day it just stopped showing up, you know, and uh, it was really interesting. So really found it very hard to find good help in rural Vermont, are, are you finding the same challenges in, in rural Colorado or are you more in like a town, a city? Yeah. So I actually went to school in Vermont. So that's kind of funny. Yeah. I went to Middlebury College in, in Vermont. So that's kind of the center of the state. But uh, yeah. So Colorado is uh, built upon tourism. Sure. You know, a lot of the mountain towns are built on tourism. So you know, the town that we invested in, Aaron, was it's called Grand Lake. It's right next to Rocky Mountain National Park, right next to one of the largest freshwater lakes in Colorado, right next to Winter Park. Um, you know, there, there are a lot of people that are seasonal workers that are used to hospitality work. Mm-hmm. So although it is difficult to find reliable contractors, we did have a relationship with people already in the market. My wife grew up going up to Grand Lake. Uh, We love it up there. It was partially an investment, partially loving the area. We want to have the excuse to go there. Mm -hmm. So long story short, it has not been difficult. I will tell you that finding reliable people at the beginning was our our largest uh, focus. And so we built relationships with locals, with contractors and have a have a deep bench of cleaners, handing people, appliance repair people, hot tub. We have a hot tub in, in our Airbnb. And so we really are, are have a deep bench there. So in case something goes awry, we're effectively insulated. Yeah. Um, but it, it, you know, from the perspective of management, it's 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 a hospitality business. It's not like real estate management, right? It's not like a tenant. you're constantly having people coming in and out. So it's very different. It's very high touch. You earn that extra yield that Uh you, that you're, you know, getting from a a short-term rental. So I don't think it's for everyone. I think it's made out to be incredibly sexy, but I think that it really is a, it's, it's difficult. It's time consuming, but you can get a lot more cash flow from it. 
Yeah, I, I really, you know, it annoys me how many like gurus out there are like, oh, just Airbnb your properties, you know, you'll make like three times the cash flow. It's the smartest thing you ever do. It's a totally different management level. It's you're basically running a hotel, you know, going from having long term tenants, you know, let's say you have a duplex or a condo or something like that to running it as an Airbnb is night and day. And it's not at all a passive income or anything like that, even if you have a management company in place, it's still active income, still active work. So um, it is definitely more active form of real estate ownership. It's a harder form of management, but it can be more cash flow lucrative. And, and that's kind of the idea. You know, it definitely, um, you end up getting more for the unit per night. But what I found in, in rural areas was that um, it was very seasonal, right? So especially being near a ski resort in, in Southern Vermont there, it was very seasonal. So we were really kind of um, hurting, you know, after the COVID kind of rush came, you know, there were a lot of people working from home, you know, it was great. And they would just go travel. So we'd have people there in the off season. But then, you know, as the, as the pandemic kind of chilled out a little bit, we um, did struggle in the off season, you know, and you have mud season up there, you know, you have, you know, ski resorts really, uh, their seasons are getting smaller and smaller with global warming. So we were seeing that as well. It was kind of a weak winter. Um, so the mountain, a lot of the mountain was closed for most of the winter. And, um, and that affected, you know, our, our, our nightly rates and our, our amount of occupancy. So actually at the end of the day, I, I found when you average the numbers out over the year with the added cost of maintenance and the turnovers, most of the money was actually going to the cleaners. Um, they would figure out what we charged to turn over the unit and they would just increase their fees. So they were at, you know, whatever we were charging. It was, it was crazy, you know, and they'd be like, oh, by this the way. Nefarious. This is This is ridiculous. <laughs> and then they're like, by the way, we don't sign 1099s in Vermont. They don't apply to people in Vermont. You know, I had literally four or five independent contractors in Vermont tell me that in Vermont, you don't have to sign a W-9. Um, and I, I just didn't understand that because a W-9 is a federal tax document. It, you know, when you pay someone as an independent contractor, you have them sign a W-9, uh, ideally before they start working with you or before you pay them, but really you should have to sign it whenever they're signing up with you. Um, and uh, it just was amazing. So I, I don't know, you know, maybe I was dealing with a certain clientele in rural Vermont there and had those challenges, but I did find it very challenging to um, run an Airbnb in a very rural location. Uh, if I did it again, I would import my labor. I'd bring people with me that I know are going to cooperate and do their j- job properly. And, and that's how I would run that. But um, it looks like you're in an area where people are more familiar with hospitality. Um, they're more welcome to it. There's also a lot of pushback against hospitality in the area I was in. People didn't like people coming up there that weren't from that area. Um, even the employees that we hired, like, would not like tourists, but, you know, be in the tourist business. And I'd be like, okay, but if there's no tourists, you don't have a job anymore. So that just didn't seem to click, you know? Um, uh, so yeah, a, lo- a lot of challenges there. <laughs> and a, t- a tourist town that hated tourism, you know, it was incredible. incredible yeah, right, stuff. right. Um, but so anyway, that was my experience. Yeah, I'm, I'm, maybe I'm a little bi. I love apartment buildings. I own $20 million in apartment buildings. They, they keep growing in wealth. They earn cash flow. I don't deal with people going on vacation and these like high demands. You know, when you have a year long lease or something, the light bulb goes out, they fix it. You know, so um, it's a different experience. But anyway, let's go on here. I did want to cover a couple more topics here that, that you focus on doing. Um, and I think I want to first break into infinite banking. This is something that we haven't talked about here on the uh, Passive Cashflow podcast. And uh, what is infinite banking? 
Yeah, I, you know, and I, I don't necessarily call it infinite banking. I, just, I think that that's sort of a, a marketing term. Basically, you got the, the question is when we amass wealth, when we amass cash flow, we have to put it somewhere. Uh-huh. Conventionally, we put it in a savings account. Some Americans view an IRA or 401k as a hybrid savings vehicle. It's going to save themselves to retirement. But uh-huh. usually, where we put our money, when we put it on the sidelines as an opportunity fund is we put it in savings in a bank and the bank takes that money they go and lend out to other people and using the infinite banking concept, whatever you want to call it, it's essentially using a specifically designed life insurance contract as the alternative Aaron to your savings. Right. Why is this matter? And why do people do this? The wealthiest families in America, like the Rockefellers, the Rothschilds, and the Romneys have used this for generations because what it does is your money compounds 400 to 600 times the national average of savings accounts tax-free. So that's tax-free growth. This compounds at 4 to 6% annualized every single year, no matter what, without taking on any more risks, exposing yourself to volatility or really changing any way that you're depositing money in your account. It's just instead of putting it in a bank account, you're putting in a life insurance contract. Now, why do wealthy people like this? Obviously, there's a tax benefit that it's 4 four to 6% compounded growth over your lifetime. But where it really gets interesting is that you can use the cash value, your cash in these life insurance contracts as collateral to as a, as a line of credit to go out and purchase real estate. A lot of my clients are real estate investors and they flow their cash flow, their operating expenses, maybe their capital expenditures or their repairs into a life insurance contract. And then they amass this certain amount of money in the life insurance contract and they take out a loan against the life insurance contract and go and buy more real estate or buy a burr or invest in marketing. And their money is still working at that four to six percent compounded because you're collateralizing it. You're not actually taking it out, so you never interrupt the compound interest of your savings over your entire lifetime. One of the other reasons why people really like this is it's creditor and asset protected. It can move to your heirs tax free. So really, this is a way to amass wealth in an alternative way that the wealthiest families in America has been employing as a place to store their opportunity fund that they can leverage for whatever they want, whenever they want, however they want to amass more wealth. Hmm. That's interesting. So it's uh, similar to whole life, but a little better because you can grow at a bit of a higher rate. I think whole life tends to be capped like 4% or it can go to six, but um, and then, uh, but you're not actually taking the money out once it starts accruing, you're just borrowing against that wealth. So that, that's interesting. So the money, the capital stays in the account, continues to uh, build in, in value and you're borrowing against that. Now, what's the interest rate you're likely paying on that, that uh, note you're taking out? Against yeah. So, so um, let me just, it is a whole life insurance policy, right? So, so the, 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 the structure is a specifically designed whole life insurance policy that is, is emphasized to give you early cash value. So what we do is we structure them in a way that gives people early cash value. Because remember, this is life insurance. There's no free lunch. There's a time period, a seasoning period, just like in real estate, it takes a couple of years for your properties to start to optimize. You know, you get cash flow, something breaks. Yeah. We all wish that we had the perfect cash flow in the pro forma. 
but it's never really like that. Well, life insurance also takes four to six years, depending on your health, age, whatever, um, to break even in terms of cash in equaling mm-hmm. the cash value that you can leverage. Yeah. Um, your question was related to the interest rate. The interest rate on the company that we use is tied to the Moody's corporate bond index. Okay. So it's all based on a tracker that is the Moody corporate bond index. I think the dividend last year was five and three quarters and the interest rate was about 4%. Uh, This is a variable interest rate, Mm -hmm. variable interest rate. And that dividend is the um, dividend that's declared every year uh, Mm -hmm. from, from the life insurance company. Um, That dividend is, it's declared, but there are some expenses that are taken out on it. So you might end up with being net 5% over the years, but there's times in which this is a total transparency. Cause I think this is very important. There's times in which the interest rate on the loan is actually equal to, or more than the outstanding dividend that's declared on your policy. Mm-hmm. So you can have an interest rate of 6%. Mm-hmm. And your 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 policy is growing at five percent, mm-hmm. but the policy is growing at a compounded rate, and the interest rate on your loan is a amortizing interest that you pay down that's declared on a yearly basis mm-hmm. over your lifetime. This is going to get a little complicated, so bear <laughs> with. Me. Over your lifetime, if you pay this loan back the amount of compounding of your money, even if it's a little bit of a lower interest rate, uh-huh. is going to supersede. And I can show this in a later video if someone actually wants to get down to the numbers here, uh-huh. if they're more of an, an analytical mind, is going to supersede the amount of interest that you pay, even if the interest rate is a little bit higher because of the effect of compound interest versus amortizing simple interest. Yeah. That's interesting. Okay, that, that's really that's really cool. See, so see, you know, it's a little similar to having a stock portfolio or something like that and borrowing against a stock portfolio, right? But in this case, um, there's a death benefit, uh, right? So there's a, that that's nice, and um, it could be hand down to your heirs. Uh, I think. Well, I guess there's ways to hand down a stock portfolio as well, but it'd have to be in like a trust or something like that. So. Um, but okay, so that's interesting. So that's a great way of getting a death benefit, uh, packing away more money than an IRA limits you to. So the, the main problem with an IRA is that you're really limited to $6,000 or so a year. You could also do a SEP IRA. That's going to get you up around uh, you know, 45000 47000 something like there in total. You know, But um, that for big earners, that's still going to max out. You know, pretty quickly. And then of course, um, pulling against that as well, there's tax consequences and things like that. So it is a little, it sounds a little easier to borrow against. I don't think you can borrow against an IRA, right? Um, no, you can, you can borrow, you can borrow from a 401k, uh, <laughs> which is up to $50,000. So it's really not that much. Um, and if you're borrowing against a stock portfolio, you can only go up to most stock portfolios will give you 30% LTV. Mm. Um, some stock portfolios will only give you 50% LTV. Mm-hmm. And if you borrow against a stock portfolio and it, and it dips, mm-hmm. you, it's called a margin call and it could yeah. quintuple, quadruple, go even more than that. Mm-hmm. Um, your, your gains and, and you have to cover those losses. So it mm-hmm. could really, really, I, I know a guy that had to, 
come up with 250 grand because of the last market crash because he had a he had an outstanding um a margin loan on his stock yeah. portfolio and he right. had an S&P 500 he just got massacred so mm-hmm. this is a safer way to to basically collateralize your your assets and you mm-hmm. can get higher LTVs 90 to 95% mm-hmm. um and you have the guarantee of 3% plus you're able to participate in the upside dividends so it's a safer more effective way to store your capital over the long period of time that you can continue to leverage and amplify um your savings Mm-hmm. Okay. And so it takes a few years for the cash to kind of uh, accumulate uh, in the account uh, until the amount you put in is equal to what you can borrow against is about, a, you said a three to four year period. You know, I, I won't, I won't say three to four because it depends on your health and your age. If you're older, obviously there's a cost of insurance that increases. Right. Right. You're closer to, to death because you have to pay for the death benefit. There's no free rods and in insurance. So mm-hmm. it could be, three, six to six years, four to six years. Mm-hmm. If you're yeah. super young, it's a lot easier. Like my age, it's a lot easier. Yeah. Um, it, it breaks even sooner, but um, there's there's a cost to insurance, guys. I mean, this is not a magic pill. I always tell my clients, this is not a magic pill. This right. is just a better way, place to store your capital over the long term, So it works for you more efficiently and effectively. Yeah, absolutely. It seems almost like a smarter strategy than an IRA in a lot of ways. I mean, you could also do it in, in in addition to an IRA, you know, it's, there's no right or wrong answer really, but I th- this does seem like there's more benefits to it. You know, the other thing about an IRA is you can't pull from it really until you're 59 and a half, you know, I'm 35. That's not really attractive to me. Right. So um, the other thing, you know, my, I, I want to save for my kid's college. Right. So this is something that'd be great for that. You know, he was just born, uh, born, uh, you know, in August. So we have some time till he's ready for college, but you know, if I put away enough in this and just kind of let it grow, then ideally over time, right? You can, uh, and, and what's the cap on this, right? So like one of the negatives of the, the IRA is you're capped even with the SEP and the, the Roth, you put it all together, you're capped like 47,000. I did an iPad, I put a podcast about it uh, about three weeks ago, actually with an IRA specialist. So with this, what are you capped at? How much can you pile into this every year? There is no premium cap. I mean, it's all based, you know, contingent upon your income. Mm-hmm. But as your income increases, you can continue to increase your premium. I mean, there are people that put in, you know, there's a huge article a couple of years ago, Aaron, that like this tech billionaire sold his company for, you know, some absurd amount. And he put in like $400 million in a life insurance contract mm. because, you know, there's ways to structure these in ways we work with people that are inheritance. Maybe they sell, maybe they sell a building, you know, Something, someone like yourself that sells a billion building and makes $5 million. And they're like, I don't know what to do with this $5 million. I, w- I don't want to put it in the stock market because it's volatile. I want to have guarantees with it. And I want to be able to continue to leverage it for the rest of my life. We can structure these contracts in ways that you only have to pay for five years. And then it's just going to keep compounding for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. Um, and th- th- there's a lot of creativity here. And people like it again because of the, the the safety to it, and there's no limits to premiums, and uh, it's a private contract, so it doesn't so- show up if you're sued. Yeah, wow, that's really interesting. Yeah, and that, that is like part of my business. You know, it's funny you'll you'll be sitting here with no AC, you know, wondering when the next check's coming in, and then all of a sudden, boom, five million dollars. You know, new AC. So that's yeah, right, right, yeah, five million dollar new AC. Right. <laughs> no, no. The problem with my AC system is that I have to now get a company out here, and it's the middle of summer. We have to pull permits. 
they got to rip out the whole, di- you know, it's like, it's not the money. It's like getting someone out here quickly at the, you know, at top of the summers is not uh, easy. So I'm looking at three weeks, four weeks. Another guy was like six weeks. So we'll see. We'll see. Maybe I'll get my uh, brother-in-law out here. We'll uh, get the hammer on the truck, you know, just get him going, get him going here. Permits. Eh. Yeah. Nah, right. Nah, nah. right. 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 Uh, so, uh, that's very interesting, my friend. Very interesting. I like what we're talking about here, Clayton, and this is a, uh, um, a good product. Um, I was talking to uh, my financial advisor the other day about something very similar to this, and, uh, it's actually a variable life insurance policy that a VEAL is they call or VUL, right. As they call it a variable universal life is that, uh, that's what I was talking about with my financial advisor. That's pretty similar to what you're talking about here, right? Um, I would stay away from VULs with a 10 foot pole. Um, And the reason why I say that is because the way that they're built, the chassis that sits on a variable universal life is basically a stock account, Mm -hmm. right? That's attached to, the um, stock market, if it's, you know, index universal life variable, there's, it participates in the interest rate index. And then the chassis is term life insurance. So what happens with, with something like a variable universal life versus whole life, whole life is premiums throughout your life. You're going to have the same premiums, Aaron, when you're 35 and you're 65 and right. you can pay up to certain ages. We can make it creative. So you don't have to pay for the rest of your life. There's tons of ways to do it. But with variable or index or universal life, this is a account plus term insurance. So what happens with term insurance? Well, you know, if you buy term insurance, you're renting insurance. And every single year, as you get older, your term insurance costs go up. Uh-huh. So someone who sells a life insurance contract or very, you know, universal life or variable life will say, well, what happens is the gains of the life insurance contract are going to be such that they will cover the additional premiums when you're right. 65. Yeah. But if you look online, there are so many suits of people that sue life insurance companies because these policies blow up because Sometimes if you have a couple of a year of down markets or two years of down markets, these, these policies get walloped because they can't cover maybe you're 65 or 40 or 55 and your term costs are dramatically higher. They can't cover the loss and these policies will lapse or you're caught. You have to bring double or triple or quadruple the amount of premium that you were told that you had to bring. And don't forget, if someone gives you a whole life insurance contract or a variable life insurance contract or a universal life insurance contract, and they give you an illustration, and I always tell my clients this, this is fictitious. Mm. This is, this is based on current dividend scales, right? So if dividends go up, in the, the terms of a, in terms of a whole life insurance contract, what does that mean? Well, that means that that four to six percent, Aaron, is going to be six, seven, eight percent, maybe. In the eighties, it was ten percent, right. right? Because it's it's you know based on the investment portfolio of the whole life insurance com- com- uh, company plus the the, the guaranteed dividend. Uh-huh. Well, if you're talking about universal life or variable life. They paint you a rosy picture, but if it's stock market years down or interest rates are or different than what they project, then that thing is going to be different than what it looks like. 
when you have when you're working with whole life, you're working with guarantees. You're guaranteed to get a certain amount, and then you can participate in the upside. Interest rates are still so historically low that you're you're going to be able to look at that and say, I know my whole life insurance contract is going to perform basically like this or a little bit better. In other years, you could have said it was basically like this, but a little bit less. But when we're talking about variable life and universal life, it's a totally different ballgame because it's based on projections from stock markets. And you and I both know we couldn't anticipate coronavirus or Black Monday or X, Y, and Z. And the whole life insurance companies have been paying these dividends out through all these events. So I would just, if I was thinking about variable or universal, I'd be very, very, um, I would question the the person that was selling you them because in, in addition to that, the if you sell these policies, you can get up to hundred, if you're an agent, you get up to 110% of the first year premium versus if I sell a whole life insurance contract, I get 30%, 20% because of the way that we structure it. So they're incredibly lucrative to the agent and they're they're pitched in a very rosy way. Mm. So I know that was kind of a diatribe. I hope that that was helpful for you, you and your listeners to think about because it, you know, the, the, these all these tactics and strategies are not taught to everyone and, and people think about them in very different ways. Well, that's interesting. Um, so the premium could go up if interest rates uh, go too high or stock market goes too low, you're saying, right? Um, or just on uh, as I get older, my premium can go up on this? Uh, right, exactly. Because it's term, it's term insurance. So if the, the gain, the projected gains in your, because what, what happens is, you know, your term insurance is going to be, they're going to say, hey, you're going to have a fixed premium because the gains of the policy is going to be able to cover you know, the additional costs for the term insurance over your lifetime, right? This is a perfect picture. This is a snapshot in time, which is what yeah. an illustration is. If it doesn't, if it doesn't end up being like that, it could blow up. Right. So, it, so ideally a whole life is safer because you are guaranteed a certain amount of growth. Is that right? Um, and, and now it is capped generally at 6%. So the trade-off compared to variable universal life is that it's not capped. It can grow at seven or eight percent or nine or twelve, but it's also not capped on the low end. So you can uh, you can lose money, right? As well. So, or, or at least it could be zero. I think. Yeah, and, and then growth. and then you have to do you have to pony up additional premiums, and maybe you don't have that same right. that amount of liquidity that year. I like whole life insurance because the real estate that you and I do, and a lot of my clients do, is risky. Mm-hmm. You know, we're buying. I mean. You know, not as risky because we're professionals, but we're buying assets that um, you know maybe have a down year, right? And sure. and and if you're if you're investing in your your day job, mm-hmm. in your business, and you're also investing and in taking risk on your what what should be your safety net, mm-hmm. I think that there's some sort of a from a financial planning perspective. I don't know if that's the best way to do it. Now, some people have higher um, risk tolerances, sure. but, but I say, Oh, I like guarantees because I'm willing to go out there and hit some, you know, invest in that the rural yeah. Colorado place or the, or my real estate. And, and I know that, that I'm going to have my guarantees in my whole life, no matter what, doesn't matter what happens at the market. And then right. I can participate in the upside. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also if you're at a whole life and you're even capped at 6% growth and the market's doing that, that's still pretty strong. And generally you're, you're capped at the minimum growth amount as well. Uh, if the market has a down year. So uh, that's interesting. 
Well, yeah, we should definitely talk more about that offline. I'm, I'm curious to compare both. I am in the position where I'm looking to uh, set up a tool like that, either way, a VUL or a whole life, you know, and um, I'm a, I like how we're comparing them here. So the pretty interesting tools, they're similar, but different in a lot of ways. And I see your point there. You know, if you're looking at this as a safe, you know, putting money away, it's not a high risk investment. You're not going to make your big bucks here. You're just going to make sure the money's there tomorrow, make sure it's growing at a four to 6% rate is just going to keep on kind of pocketing away. Yeah, I get it. You know, that's what whole life is about. That's what savings and IRAs are about, right? So um, this is a good way to make sure it's there where the variable universal life is really a higher risk uh, product, right? So you can grow at, you know, eight, nine, 10%, but you could also grow at zero or you can lose money or premiums can go up, right? So that's what I understand. Those are the two big uh, risks there. Okay. Excellent. Excellent. Well, Clayton, this has been a ton of information. I've learned a lot myself, especially since I'm littering the market shopping for these products, <laughs> having a child my, myself here with my wife and uh, buying a new home with a broken air conditioning system. <laughs> so all these things are going on in my life. And it would, you know what I could do if I had the whole life in place there you go. and I was in between closings and uh, a little light on the liquid cash, I could borrow against my whole life policy put in my $8,000 air conditioning system. And then at, when times are better, we could pay it back or not even pay it back. It really doesn't matter. You just keep on, you know, putting money in the, uh, in the, the whole life there. And then it all makes sense. It all kind of pays ourselves. So, all right. Excellent. Excellent stuff. So Clayton, how can people uh, reach out to you, learn more about what you do? Absolutely. So uh, my, my, my um, company's creative-capitalist.com. You can reach me there. You can text me. I like to give out my phone. Just text me. Don't call me 412-552-3029 or reach out to me on Instagram, TikTok, LinkedIn, Clay Hepler. I'm there. I love to talk to people about this and you can watch all the videos that I have, the educational content related to how to implement this. What's the best strategy? Why it couples so well with real estate? Why, why it looks so much like real estate and why real estate, a lot of real estate clients really like it. Aaron, thank you so much for having me on the show and giving me the opportunity to speak with your, your listeners, your audience about this. And um, yeah. Absolutely. Thank you, Clayton. I've really enjoyed listening to you here. I learned a bunch of information myself, so we'll definitely connect uh, in the future offline here. And of course, for our listeners, uh, go to peoplescapitalgroup.com, learn more about our real estate investments and how we help people invest in real estate. Now we've been doing this about 10 years now. And if you want to invest in apartment buildings like the ones you see behind me here, you can learn more about how we help people do that and how we have an in-house management company and work with self-directed IRAs and all different types of uh, individuals, accredited, non-accredited, sophisticated investors, people with capital to work in real estate. So it all starts with educating yourself at peoplescapitalgroup.com. And if you like what you see, you can qualify to invest right there on our website and we can get in touch with you and set up a discovery call and you can learn more about how we help people build wealth in real estate. So thank you so much, Clayton. Thank you for our listeners. Please stay posted for more podcasts in the future. We come out every single week with a new episode of the Passive Cash Flow Podcast. Enjoy your day.